Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Freight and Salvage. And I also want to welcome our listening audience who will be taking part in um, the next hour as a podcast on Berkeley Talks. I'm Susan Hoffman, and this is the Spring Speaker Series, the first of four Wednesdays where we'll gather here. And I'm really delighted that today we have Dr. David Rollet, who will be talking about immunotherapy. Um, And he, I want to say a few words about him. As you can tell, he's from the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology, and he is a recognized expert in NK cells. Do people know what NK cells are? Okay, the natural killer cells. He'll tell you more about that. And he'll talk talk more about tumor immunology. He's collaborated on studies to differentiate um, mouse natural killer cells from embryonic uh, stem cells. And he w- and to look at the adaptation, the human culture system that promotes the differentiation of human NK cells and gamma delta cells as well. He's going to explain all of this, so you will understand it. Um, he also has success in developing the culture system that will enable detailed dissections of cellular interactions, genetic regulatory events, and DNA rearrangements that underlie T and NK cell development. So for all of us who are not from the scientific field, put on your seatbelts. You are going to be in for a great hour of enlightenment, and I'm really delighted to recognize Dr. David Rollet. Thanks. It's, it's really a great opportunity to uh, come here. I was especially excited to be up on this stage uh, where I've seen so many musicians. I got to go into the green room before. That was exciting. <laughs> but um, let me introduce myself a little bit. Uh, as, as, uh, as you've heard, I, I'm a professor at Berkeley. I've been there since 1991. <clears throat> I uh, am in the Cancer Research Lab in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology, and I currently direct the Immunotherapeutics and Vaccine Research Initiative. My research more recently, and well, for years in fact, has addressed mechanisms of immune recognition, how, how Im- immune cells and antibodies recognize pathogens and cancer, and how they interact to destroy cancer cells. That's been a major uh, focus in recent years. Increasingly, we're focused on, on immunotherapy itself, devising new ways to get the immune system to, to attack cancer. Um, like many of you, I'm sure, I've also been touched by cancer personally. My father died of bladder cancer. This was frustrating and, of course, sad, but he, he was being treated with chemotherapy. It was ineffective. There was a lot of suffering, and that's been a motivation for me to develop better, better therapies for cancer. I'm also a cancer survivor myself. I've had prostate cancer and then a recurrence of it. And you know, one of the things you experience is, is in the, you know, mostly common current treatments now, uh, which we nickname slash burn and poison. 
uh, referring, of course, to surgery, radiotherapy, and chemotherapy, um, that we hope we can do better. I mean, those, those therapies have been, have been helpful, and I don't want to minimize their importance, um, but uh, we were hoping we can do better, and that's, that's really what the, the revolution in immunotherapy is all about, is, is developing therapies that are more effective and, and less toxic, less debilitating to patients. Now, I should say what I'm not. I'm not an MD. I'm not a clinician. I don't treat patients, and I'm probably not going to be able to answer a lot of your questions about specific uh, clinical questions, and I apologize for that in advance. Um, while I'm not a clinician, I do want to emphasize uh, what will be one of the main messages of this talk, which is that, you know, tomorrow's cures are going to come really from fundamental research, basic research that is as likely to be carried out by PhDs as MDs and as likely to be carried out as Berkeley as at a medical school like UCSF. And I'll provide a Berkeley-specific example for you that's, that really illustrates this. And finally, before I proceed, I should mention that I do consult with uh, biotech companies, and I, in fact, co-founded a biotech company. Uh, I'll mention some of that in this talk. I wanted to, to say that out front. Uh, in our system of therapeutics, uh, industry is a necessary participant because they underwrite the costs of clinical development and testing that no university researcher could, could carry out. So I'm going to try and do this at a fairly basic level. I'm not going to try and get too complicated here, and I'll, I'll show some data, but simple data, I think, and, and I know there's a, probably a great range of uh, experience and, and uh, knowledge about these matters here, and uh, I'll, just, I'll just do what I can to try and reach as many of you as possible. So I want to start with you know, just a little lesson about immune, immune recognition and immune cells. I mean, everyone's heard of antibodies, and um, I, I want to point out that that antibodies are, are not cells, they're, they're molecules, these, like these, this little Y-shaped uh, molecule in this, in this uh, cartoon. They uh, are made by cells, but they're not themselves cells, and they work by binding to things and, and principally. So they, they, for example, can bind to a virus or bind to a bacterium, and in so doing can neutralize them and, and, and prevent their infectivity. So that's, that's one mechanism by which antibodies work. They can also work together with cells to mediate other kinds of immunity that I'll mention at the end of the talk. <clears throat> On the other side, we have uh, what we call cellular immunity, and uh, it's mediated in part by killer cells. And so these are cells that kill. And there's two kinds, killer T cells and natural killer cells. And uh, as you'll see, they have different modes of recognition and different, different roles in the immune response. And they both are relevant for, for, for cancer. I want to show you this. These are, these are tumor cells uh, here, and uh, what you'll see are, is, is a T cell in this case coming in, and it's going to recognize this cancer cell, and then it's going to kill it, and when it kills it, it flashes red, uh, as you'll see. So there are these, these phases where the T cell recognizes the tumor cell, and then, boom, it, it kills it. You see the cell kind of shrivel up, and then another T cell below is killing the tumor cell below it, which takes a little bit longer to die. There you go. So these are very extraordinarily good uh, killers of cells, and therefore they're a major uh, component of our efforts to uh, target cancer because, of course, we want to kill cancer cells. Let me show you one more uh, image uh, or video. This is how the killer cells kill. They have, an, they have in their inside of them, in their cytoplasm, uh, granules that contain toxic substances, uh, which are shown in red in this green T cell here. And as you'll see in the image, uh, when it confronts the, the, the blue tumor cell, uh, the, the granules refocus on one 
part of the cell, towards the uh, target cell, the tumor cell in this case, and then, and then they deliver it onto the membrane of the, of the cell, killing it. In fact, in this, in this image, it's kind of cool because, because you become the target cell the way the, the image resolves. So you'll see that here. So first you see the recognition. You see the red granules moving towards the tumor cell, and boom. Now we focus in right on that plane, and you see those. You're getting killed now by the, <laughs> by the, by the granules. Okay, so that's what um, T cells and NK cells do, and, um, and that's why they're obviously useful in killing cancer cells. Um, what I want to do in the first part of the talk is tell you about an anatomy, if you will, of a great discovery in cancer research that occurred at Berkeley, and that's really changed uh, how we do cancer therapy in, this, uh, in the world. And it was, uh, it was led by Jim Allison, a former Berkeley uh, colleague of ours who was in, in our department and led the Cancer Research Laboratory from 1984 to 2004. Um, this uh, image is actually from a new documentary film that's been made about him that was just, uh, just premiered in, in, uh, at the South by Southwest Film Festival and will be making its way to the Bay sometime relatively soon. So, so let's talk about how that happened, and I, what I want to do is, is take you through it. And, and a, the precursor discovery that, that was actually a collaboration between my lab and Jim's lab to illustrate how curiosity-driven research, which is really designed just to understand mechanisms, can lead to breakthroughs in, in therapy. Um, as an aside, this type of research is sometimes called basic research, meaning it fo focuses on basic mechanisms. But, but we've learned that some, sometimes people understand that to mean basic in the sense of simple or easy. And, of course, it's anything but that. It's, it's hard. I like to call it mechanism-focused research, and it's usually driven by curiosity but with an eye towards application. So what mechanism were we focused on in these early studies? The question was, how does a T cell recognize a tumor cell or other cell, and, and how does it recognize it, and how is it triggered to kill it? What are the molecular participants in that event? So by the early 1980s, it was clear that, that T cells have on their surface a protein called a receptor that can recognize antigens. Now, by way of, of vocabulary here, antigens in, in immunology are just things that are recognized by the immune system. So that's a, a fairly general term. So, so tumor cells, as we'll see, can present antigens, and T cells have a receptor that can bind to them. And when that interaction happens, it conveys a signal into the T cell, which, which we've come to call signal one. And it's a key signal that can trigger the T cell now to uh, kill the tumor cell. Um, so signal one triggers killing. But to understand this second part, you need to know that when T cells are just you know, in your bloodstream, for example, they're actually not yet activated. They're not yet good killer cells. They need to be pre-activated. And that was really the event that we were studying in these, in these experiments around 1990 or 92. And the question is, how do you pre-activate the T cell? Is this signal enough? And it became clear that signal one is not enough. Signal one can trigger a cell once it's active, but you need another signal to, to pre-activate it. And, and, and so that, that came to be called signal two, but we didn't know what it was. The question is, what is this missing second signal? Um, so that came to be called co-stimulation. And the idea was, the hypothesis was, that there's a co-stimulatory receptor of some kind. It recognizes something on, on a cell that presents antigens. 
and that signal one and signal two work together to activate the T cell. You really need this in order to make a T cell response. And, and that, that turns out to be, to be true. So what is signal two? That was, that was what we set out to understand. And this, this was a, a major issue around uh, just in the late 1980s. And so Jim and I, I was interested in this question before I came to Berkeley when I was a professor at MIT, and Jim, Jim was interested in this question at Berkeley. When I came to Berkeley, we worked on this together. Uh, that's uh, Jim and I with my son, Michael, who's now 26, uh, a while ago. Um, and we, what we showed is we identified the co-stimulatory receptor, and it turned out to be a molecule called CD28. And this molecule uh, was known, but it wasn't known what it did. And what we showed clearly was that it, it, it has a partner that it interacts with on another cell, and that provides a second signal, and signal one and signal two work together to activate the T cell. So I'm going to use this um, analogy here throughout the talk uh, that's commonly used in the field and, and say that CD28 is the accelerator of the T cell response. And as you'll see, there are breaks as well. So this was a uh, landmark discovery. It kind of changed uh, how we viewed how T cells are activated. Uh, and, uh, but it also had potential applications, and those have been borne out uh, in, in many studies. Uh, at this juncture, however, I began to focus more actively on another kind of killer cell, the natural killer cell, which I'll, which I'll tell you about shortly. But, but I do want to say what, what happened subsequently here, which is that, that Jim became interested in following up on this. And um, proteins uh, come in families. That's something uh, you may know. Uh, proteins with related sequences. So you can, you can discern that they're related, recent relatives of each other. And CD28 had a relative, and it was a protein called CTLA4. And really, no one know, knew what it did. But it, it was known that it bound to, to the same molecules that CD28 binds to. And so it was assumed that it probably does the same thing. It probably also is another form of accelerator or, or co-stimulator for, for T cells. So that was the assumption. But uh, Jim and his graduate student, Max Crummel, showed that, in fact, CTLA-4 has an opposite activity. It actually curtails the response. It inhibits the response. So when it engages the receptor, it, it, turns, it, it turns the T cell down or off. So now CTLA-4 can be considered the breaks of the response. Now, a few years later, a Japanese scientist named Tasaku Hanjo uh, showed that a, another relative of CD28 that's called PD, PD1 is also an inhibitor of T cells. So now we have two kinds of breaks that, that can curtail or inhibit T cell activation. These two receptors, and actually others now, have come to be called collectively checkpoint receptors, and that really refers to the fact that their main role in the immune response is to prevent or inhibit autoimmunity. There are fail-safe mechanism checkpoints that make sure the immune system doesn't overdo it by inhibiting the response um, at the, when it becomes over-exuberant. And if you don't have those interactions, you can get autoimmunity. Uh, but the concern that, of course, became uh, obvious was that maybe sometimes they do too much inhibition and prevent responses that we want. And, and that's what Jim uh, immediately thought of when, when this discovery was made. He, um, he had the very important insight that maybe CTLA-4 inhibits the response of T cells to cancer. So the idea is that T cells are responding to cancer, they're, they're attacking cancer, and, or at least they have the capacity to do that, but they're being inhibited by CTLA-4. And, and how then can you release the brakes to enable T cells to attack cancer cells? 
And the way uh, you can imagine doing that is to block the receptor. And in immunology, we like to use antibodies. And so you can make an antibody that binds to CTLA-4. And if it binds to CTLA-4, it blocks that interaction. You don't get that inhibitory signal, and therefore you unleash the T cells potentially to kill cancer. So that was a hypothesis, but of course um, it had to be tested. I do want to mention that this is what I think, uh, you know, approach-wise, this, this is a revealing uh, progression of, of, of findings because really, you know, you're revealing basic mechanisms here. You don't know what to expect. You make these findings, but then you have an eye towards treating disease when, when you make findings like this. And, and this is really, I think, the way that important new discoveries will happen in the future. Um, okay, so, so Jim did go about testing it, and uh, he used a, a cancer model in mice. Now, I'm going to have several studies I'll show you of, of cancer in mice, and I just want to um, predicate this by pointing out that uh, these experiments are done humanely. The mice are, um, are, are uh, sacrificed if they, uh, tumors grow to a point they don't undergo great suffering. And, and if nothing else, I hope I convince you today that this type of research leads to, leads to curative treatments in, in humans, so, it's, it's, so it's, it's critically important research. So what Jim found, uh, he, he basically used a model where tumor cancer cells are transplanted into mice, and, and the tumor, without any antibodies injected, the tumors grow progressively, and the mice have to be euthanized. But uh, if you inject CTLA-4 antibody, the tumors just melted away. So that was really a remarkable finding, and, and it really uh, changed everything, although I have to say it wasn't entirely clear at the time. It turned out this was a Nobel Prize-winning experiment and one that had a huge impact in the, in the clinic, but um, there was just a lot of skepticism about it initially. People sneer that mice and people are different. That's something you hear all the time. But this is a beautifully illustrated case of how this kind of discovery in mice turned out to be very well translated into humans. And I think that's more common than not, frankly. Uh, this shows the time course for developing this cancer drug. This, this is nothing that happened quickly. Um, the... Uh, Discoveries at Berkeley were in 95, 96, shown here at the very beginning. And um, then, as I mentioned, you know, industry had to become involved because they had to develop the human uh, drug and do all the testing, which we can't readily do in small numbers of patients, even in a, even in a med school lab, we couldn't readily do that. So this took years, you know, a total of about 15 years. And uh, the drug name uh, that was developed for use in humans was called ipilimumab. And I think it's called Yervoy on the bottle, if you will. Um, so this drug was underwent extensive testing and finally so-called phase three clinical trials where it was tested for efficacy in you know, double-blind controlled trials. And in 2011, it, it showed clear efficacy in it, and it achieved FDA approval. And this is now an, this is now an approved drug used, used to treat patients. I do want to point out here, I think you know, this is really in, in many ways the limiting part, good ideas coming up you know, figuring out how to manipulate the response. This is expensive and time-consuming, but, but fairly standardized. So the findings were that tumors shrank. So, so it was first tested in metastatic melanoma. Now, I think most of you know that metastases uh, are when uh, pieces of a tumor or cells from a primary tumor uh, break off of the tumor and migrate to distant sites where they form secondary tumors, and this is the stage of, of cancer which is the hardest to treat. Uh, this patient had a uh, metastasis in the lung. 
and melanoma can metastasize in the brain, lung, liver, and, and elsewhere. Uh, so after treatment, that, that lung mass disappeared. So that was you know, great news. Uh, um, it, it was clearly having a major effect. But, but it's sometimes the case that therapies cause tumors to shrink, but then they grow back. So, so I want to, you know, this is our sort of holy grail slide. What, what we try and do nowadays and what immunotherapy has proven that it can do is, you know, to, to do better. So, so many therapies um, will, will basically delay cancer. Uh, many chemotherapies, for example, will delay cancer. It gives you time. Time is good. I have no, no problem with time. That's a great thing. But clearly what you want to do is to, is to cure more patients. And, and so we always say we, like to, we want to raise the tail on the survival curves uh, of, of people with cancer and ultimately raise it all the way to the top. Uh, and so that's what immunotherapy has proven that it can do. And th this shows the uh, data now 10 years out on um, patients with previously incurable metastatic melanoma treated with this drug called ipilimumab. And, and it doesn't work for everyone, so it works for about 20% of, of these patients. And, but what you see is they have, we read, the tail is raised. These, these, these people seem to be cured effectively of their disease. Um, and so this was really a, a major breakthrough that um, has kind of changed everything. Because this is, I think, the first, one of the first cases where this type of metastatic disease could be cured in double-blind clinical, uh, controlled clinical trials. So it, it works. And, but more importantly, you can build on it. And when you, can, when you see a good thing like this, you copycat it, you try and make it better by combining it with other therapies, and, and that is going on uh, very extensively now and, and, and has occurred already. And the first uh, major um, breakthrough following the CTLA-4 findings occurred for this receptor called PD-1. So PD-1, as I mentioned, is another inhibitory receptor, and, and if blocking, blocking CTLA-4 works, why not block PD-1? So, so this, of course, was done, and the results were really uh, quite remarkable. PD-1 actually works better than CTLA-4. This is now four-year data, also in melanoma, where, uh, in this case, uh, anti-CTLA-4 works in something like 34% of patients. But now, you know, more than 50% of patients respond to anti-PD-1. And the combination of anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4 is uh, approaching 60% efficacy in these, in these patients. So this was really quite remarkable um, improvement over what was previously available and has had a huge impact now in, on clinical uh, medicine and oncology. Um, there is a caveat, of course, as many of you will be aware, these therapies can cause uh, side effects, sometimes substantial fevers, nausea, diarrhea, sometimes autoimmunity, but rarely. Um, usually the side effects occur during treatment, and then they resolve after treatment. Okay, um, so that just um, summarizes what I told you. So one really interesting part of immunotherapy is it doesn't treat the tumor. It doesn't treat the cancer. It treats the immune system. So this suggests it might work with other kinds of cancer, not just with melanoma. So that proved to be the case. Uh, immunotherapy is effective in, in other kinds of cancer. This is showing stage four recurrent non-small cell lung cancer. And you see a clear improvement in patients uh, treated with PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4. The, the tail has been raised in these survival curves compared to what chemotherapy does. And in fact, it works in several kinds of cancers, not all cancers, but several kinds of cancers, including melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, renal cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, bladder cancer, 
head and neck cancers and, and certain colorectal cancers. So, you know, what are the lessons learned? That understanding basic molecular mechanisms leads to curative therapies, and that immunotherapy, where you target the immune system and not the tumor, is the most effective curative mode of cancer therapy developed in many decades. So these studies were obviously important, and uh, Jim Allison and Sasaku Hanjo were awarded the 2018 Nobel Prize for this work in medicine. And uh, I was fortunate to go to the ceremony, which was great to celebrate with Jim and other colleagues. Uh, this is Jim showing, in fact, that same uh, slide I showed, you know, raising the tail in the survival curves during his Nobel lecture, receiving the award. And this young woman came, Sharon Belvin. She was a 22-year-old with uh, metastatic melanoma, uh, two, uh, diagnosed a couple of weeks before her wedding, uh, and uh, treated subsequently with chemotherapy and basically didn't, of course, didn't respond. And uh, ultimately, um, her, you know, when she'd run out of all options, her oncologist, uh, Jed Walchuk, shown here on the right, uh, suggested she join the ipilimumab clinical trial, which she did, and her, her cancer went away. So she's 10 years out now and uh, has a family and, and seems to be just perfectly healthy. So that, that's, you know, a great success story, and she likes to come to, the, to all these kinds of ceremonies to, to lend her support to, to all these efforts. The other uh, famous, another famous recipient, of course, is Jimmy Carter, who had, who had brain metastases and uh, was in, you know, basically told he had a few weeks and when he went on a trial with anti-PD-1 therapy, and uh, remarkably he responded uh, uh, very well, and he now seems to be fine. This was in 2015. I, I think this is actually quite remarkable. He's a 90-year-old man. And so even with a very aging immune system, this type of therapy can work. So um, one of my messages here is that this type of breakthrough is often not made by doctors or in medical schools, but by by people just trying to understand basic mechanisms. And you know, Jim and his, uh, these are all members of Jim's Berkeley lab who came to join him uh, in Stockholm and, and along with myself and my colleague Ellen Roby. And, and this is Dana Leach, who was first author on the, uh, on the classic paper. And, you know, Jim, Jim really uh, sang the praises of Berkeley and, and the fact that he thought this was a place where he could really do the kind of work he did, uh, you know, that really made these incredible changes in, in how we treat cancer now. So now I want to transition a little bit, and I want to actually emphasize the limitations of this kind of therapy. And, and this gets, again, at mechanistic questions. You know, what do the T cells recognize on tumor cells? And, and this is what's, what's been worked out. It, it turns out when normal cells become cancer cells, there's dysregulation. And poorly regulated DNA replication, which occurs in cancer cells, can lead to mutations in DNA. At the same time, many kinds of cancer arise because of carcinogens, cigarettes, smoke, ultraviolet light on your skin, etc. And so cells are accumulating mutations anyhow. And it turns out it's the mutations that generate the variations or antigens that T cells see. So you have altered sequences of normal cellular proteins that are carrying mutations. And those are foreign to us because, you know, they're not part of our normal proteins. They're, they're mutated proteins. They're aberrant proteins with different sequences. And T cells recognize them as foreign. And that really seems, those are really the major antigens that T cells recognize. So T cells uh, can arise. They can recognize these mutated peptides on um, cancer cells, and they can then destroy them. 
So what do we know about mutations in cancer cells? So this is a complicated plot, but um, it shows on the top a list of many different kinds of cancer. And on the vertical axis is the rate of mutation in these tumors. So actually each dot here is a separate, is a different human tumor, cancer from a patient, that's been sequenced and compared to their normal DNA. And it, sh and it, shows, a, it shows the number of mutations in that kind of cancer. So the higher they, up here, the higher they are up here, the more mutations they have. And so what you see is that the tumors on the right have a lot of mutations, and the tumors on the left have relatively few mutations. So that what that means is that these tumors on the right have lots of antigens, and these tumors on the left don't have very many antigens, if any. And in fact, the red uh, font here shows the kinds of cancer uh, in which checkpoint therapy is effective. And you can see they cluster on the right side of this curve. And, and the bottom line is, is that this type of therapy is just not very effective against um, tumors on the left here that don't have very many mutations. And we think it's because these kinds of cancers are relatively invisible to T cells. I mean, there, there may be exceptions, but in general, they don't present many antigens that T cells can see. So what are we going to do about those kinds of cancers? And, uh, you know, we, we have to find another approach for immunotherapy. And that's where my more recent work comes in. We, we're trying to target these, these other kinds of immune cells called natural killer cells to, to mobilize them against those kinds of cancers. So let me tell you a little bit now about NK cells or natural killer cells. So these are related to T cells. Uh, they kill tumor cells just like T cells do same mechanisms, but they have a distinct type of recognition that's broader than that of T cells. And I'll tell you about that in a sec. And so we think that due to this broader kind of uh, recognition that we can mobilize them against many additional kinds of cancer. So how do you figure out what they recognize? Well, I just put this slide up to help you appreciate that you know, we've been working on it for almost 30 years, and, <laughs> and it's not something you do overnight. And, um, but, but you begin to understand how they work. And, and what you come to understand is that there are several types of recognition receptors on NK cells, but there's a couple, actually, of common themes, and I want to emphasize one of them now. So that common theme is that natural killer cells recognize stress. They recognize stress that occurs in cells because it turns out that tumor cells are very stressed out. They have a form of various forms of stress that can be called oncogenic stress and other types of stress pathways that are activated in those cells. So let me just illustrate this with a cartoon. Normal cells are generally unstressed, um, but when, when cells become tumor cells and they're replicating very rapidly and inappropriately, uh, there can be damage to the genome, there can be overproduction of proteins, which there, there can be overly rapid cell proliferation. All these things activate stress pathways in cells. And it turns out these stress pathways are wired to turn on in cells some proteins on the membrane that you can call kill me flags. <laughs> and there's a bunch of them. Uh, and basically what they do is they invite natural killer cells to, to kill the, the, these cells. So highly stressed cells basically uh, invite themselves to be killed. That's one of our protective mechanisms that we, that we have. So NK cells have receptors. They can recognize those kill me flags, and then they can, then they can kill them. So 
in terms of broad recognition, what's exciting is that, is that these flags I'm mentioning are displayed on the surface of almost all cancer cells, including those that don't have very many mutations, and including the ones that are on the left side of that graph that I showed earlier. So you might ask, well, why don't they just kill all the tumors then? Uh, you, don't, you know, they should just kill them, and there shouldn't be any problems. But, you know, NK cells, like T cells, have accelerators and brakes. <laughs> Um, and in cancer, we now know there's too little acceleration and too much breaking. And, and therefore, they are often inactivated in cancer cells. And so, so what we need to do is identify accelerators and breaks. We need to intervene to provide the tumor, uh, the former, and block the latter. So I'll take you through this uh, quickly. Uh, colleagues of mine at Berkeley, Russell Vance and Dan Portnoy, were studying bacteria. And they showed that a bacterial product causes general activation of the immune system. So this was, uh, this was work that came from studying bacteria. They weren't studying cancer. And, and this, I think, illustrates the importance of basic research and how if you're, think, if you're thinking about it and, and, and when, when these findings are revealed, if you consider how to apply them, you can, you can come up with new therapeutics. So the product that the bacteria make is, has a name. It's called a cyclic dinucleotide. It's a small molecule. I'll abbreviate it CDN. And um, basically, the CDN enters cells. They bind inside the cells to a protein called sting. And that activates the cell to secrete interferons, these hormone-like proteins that, it turns out, activate NK cells and T cells. So here's a cartoon. The CDNs enter the cells. They interact with sting. Sting turns on uh, gene expression such that cells make interferons, they secrete interferons, and the interferons can then activate NK cells and T cells, in fact. So clearly, CDNs might have potential as therapeutic agents against cancer because of that activity. So a postdoctoral fellow in the lab, Asaf Marcus, investigated this uh, not too long ago. And, you know, the question was, do CDNs activate NK cells? This was really the the, the one of the studies that showed this. And so he showed that if you inject CDNs into mice, you activate NK cells. You don't have to worry about what we're actually measuring here. They activate NK cells very effectively, and they only do it if the, if the, cells have a, um, if the mice have a functional gene for that protein called sting. If we have a mutant sting, they don't respond. So it depends on that pathway I mentioned. So on the basis of these kinds of findings that, that CDNs activate T cells and NK cells, they're now being tested in clinical trials for various forms of cancer. So we wanted to test them in the context of NK cells to see whether we can mobilize NK cells against cancer. So this is work by Chris Nikolai, a grad student in the lab. And these, again, will be looking at transplanted uh, tumor models in mice and uh, showing you some results here. And, and Chris investigated, invested a whole series of cancer models that NK cells can recognize, but killer T cells can't. So we were, really wanted to, to see uh, what NK cells can do here. And this is a leukemia line, and, and you can see the tumors are growing. And uh, if you treat them with saline, they continue to grow. But if you treat them with the CDNs, the tumors melt away. And, and this isn't temporary. These mice are cured. They survive uh, indefinitely. So this was 100% cure rate in this model, and that was very uh, exciting. Now, that's not always the case. At the other extreme, this is a melanoma line that we work with. This, this line is known to be very hard to cure in general. Um, it doesn't even, it's not even easily cured by T cells. Um, and you treat it with these CDNs. It delays the tumors, 
But eventually they grow, and the mice all have to be euthanized. Less than 10% cure rate. And in between, there was four other models that gave intermediate results, 30%, 50%, 70% cure rates. So this is the range of results you may get. Uh, Chris showed that tumor rejection in these models is mediated by NK cells, not by T cells. So this is NK-dependent tumor rejection induced by CDNs. Okay, so, so here we have, we think, an accelerator for, for NK cells, uh, these the CDNs, that they can help activate the NK cells. But then what about the breaks? And, and we'd shown that NK cells, when they enter tumors, are often desensitized or inhibited and therefore ineffective. And, and what we really wanted to do then, of course, is you know, amp up the acceleration and take off the breaks, have more activated NK cells and therefore more tumor cell activity. And this, this principle of combining uh, approaches uh, is, is really the principle of combination therapy. The idea is that drugs that act by different mechanisms or at different stages of a process in the same disease may work better together than separately, and that combining agents that accelerate with agents that take off the brakes is a good principle for combination therapy, and that's something that we then tested. So the question was, can we improve therapy that mobilizes NK cells by taking off their brakes? So some years ago, we discovered that uh, NK cells are often inactivated with tumors, as I mentioned. Uh, but we also showed that proteins called cytokines, and in particular in the uh, IL-2, IL-15 family, can reactivate the NK cells. They can take off the breaks. So this, this was exciting. Uh, we, could, we could show they had therapeutic effects uh, in certain tumor models. So, so we used one particular cytokine that's called SUPER2. <laughs> and that's, it's a designer cytokine, in fact, made by our collaborator at Stanford, Chris Garcia. And it's a very effective cytokine it's at stimulating this in NK cells. And basically, it kind of reactivates NK cells from this desensitized state and has this effect we want of, 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 of you know, reversing or taking off the brakes. And so we, we tested that in combination, and we, we used this model that I mentioned before, this very hard-to-cure model, where with CDNs alone... We get a delay, but, but, but not, a, cure, not a, a high cure rate. And so this is work by Natalie Wolf, a graduate student in the lab. And Natalie treated with CDNs alone or with Super 2 alone. And you can see in both cases, tumor growth is delayed but, can, but continues to grow in, in many of the mice. But the combination of the CDN and the Super 2 show these, these much more substantial effects. And when we look at survival, it's even more remarkable so first, CDNs alone, none of the mice survive, as I already indicated. But with Super 2, you get some survivors. And with the combination, now we're up to 70% survival in this, in this difficult model. So this was exciting and uh, encouraging. And we, we, hope, uh, we hope to develop this for you know, therapeutic applications in, in patients. Um, let me introduce uh, what we call the Immunotherapeutics and Vaccine Research Initiative at Berkeley. This, you know, the story I just told you about the CDNs, uh, work done in bacteria, translates into uh, cancer therapies, illustrates the theme behind the Immunotherapeutics and Vaccine Research Initiative. We, at Berkeley, we have very strong cancer immunology. We have very strong uh, infectious disease immunology. And, you know, we realized that uh, the, our, our work, although in seemingly different subjects, was informing uh, synergistically uh, progress in cancer. So that, that was sort of principle one. Research done to understand the immune response to bacteria or viruses 
lead to development of drugs for cancer. But then we also think the converse is true, and there's increasing evidence for this, that research in cancer immunology can lead to advances in vaccines and new treatments for infectious disease. So, so what, we, what we do in the IVR is we combine uh, our efforts to generate uh, synergy between these groups to develop new generations of, of uh, drugs for both infectious disease and cancer immunology. I also want to mention a subgroup of the IVRI uh, that's focused on pediatric immunotherapy. And this, this is a group of us, uh, including myself and my colleagues Lynn Ha and uh, Michael Dupage and Dirk Hockemeyer, who work on cancer immunology, but also basic principles in cancer biology, but focused on pediatric immunotherapy. And um, I'll tell you why pediatric immunotherapy is, is, is interesting uh, in, with respect to the work we do. And, and we do this work in collaboration with a local hospital, Children's Hospital Oakland, in collaboration with oncologists Andrew Agarwal and Jennifer Mitchlich, and in collaboration with, um, with physician scientists at UCSF Department of Pediatrics, Bill Weiss and Clay Gustafson. So these, these people are all experts in, in children's cancers. And, uh, you know, why children's cancers? Well, here's that plot again of, of cancers. And what's quite remarkable is that children's cancers... Uh, cluster on the left side of this of this plot. So they have very few mutations generally, and in fact, don't work well uh, for checkpoint therapy subjects. So checkpoint therapy has not worked well at all in pediatric cancer, and and that's really a shortcoming. And uh, and and obviously we want to do something about that. Um, turns out NK cells are known to kill many of these types of cancer cells. These are, by the way, is leukemia, AML, and ALL and then neuroblastoma, and then brain cancers like medulloblastoma and glioblastoma. So NK cells are known to kill many of those cancer cells effectively, and we think they represent an exciting alternative target for immunotherapy of uh, pediatric cancers. So we're investigating that. I'll just show you a little data. Uh, this is work uh, from a postdoc in the lab, Christina Blage. And uh, we tested it in a neuroblastoma model that our colleagues Bill Weiss at UCSF developed. This is a very hard uh, model to cure, very aggressive cancer in, in a mouse model. Um, and uh, we find, uh, and we're very encouraged by this, that this combination of CDNs and SUPER2 has, has, has an important effect. It, it causes a strong delay in, in, in tumor growth and, and really delays the uh, survival curve out you know, quite a large number of days. And this, you know, they've tried a lot of therapies uh, in this model, and basically this is they tell us is the best effect they've ever seen uh, in this type of model. But so far, it doesn't lead to many long-term survivors. So what, so what are we going to do about that? And we think improvements are coming. And I'll tell you about one of the things we're planning to do. And this involves a uh, different kind of therapy uh, that uh, I haven't told you about yet, and that's mediated by antibodies. So uh, antibodies are another approach to cancer therapy that there are cases where you can develop antibodies that target cancer, that, that interact with cancer cells, and with the help of natural killer cells, kill cancer cells. And I'll show you how that, how that kind of works. So first of all, it turns out that tumor cells often express on their surface uh, proteins that uh, are selectively expressed by the tumor cells. Uh, these are not mutated proteins. They're self-proteins, but they're just not expressed by most normal cells. They may have been expressed in the embryo, but they're no longer expressed in adult cells. But they can be re-expressed on cancer cells. That would be one example. So these are attractive targets for therapy, 
if you can tar target them. And um, so antibodies can be prepared that bind to the tumor antigen, like that. And it turns out that antibodies have in their rear end, <laughs> uh, you know, moieties that bind to NK cell receptors. So NK cells have a receptor on their membrane that binds to antibodies. They bind to the rear end of antibodies. It's called an FC receptor. And when it binds, that can activate the NK cell and then the NK cell can kill the tumor cell. So this is a cooperation now between an antibody and a uh, NK cell. So several of these drugs have been developed. Uh, there, you may have heard of some of them, rituximab, trastuzumab, cetuximab, denotuximab. These, these are for different kinds of cancer. They generally delay the tumors. There's relatively few cures. The question, of course, is, is why. And I, I'd like to just tell you about one of them, uh, this denotuximab, because it's relevant to our neuroblastoma work. It turns out that neuroblastoma cells express on their membrane this, this uh, antigen called GD2. And antibodies can be prepared against GD2, and they can bind to them. And then with NK cells, you can, you can try and kill the, the neuroblastoma cells. This is now an approved therapy in, in neuroblastoma patients. The problem is it has only modest efficacy, and we think it's because NK cells are less than fully active. And so we think that combining anti-GD2 with NK activators like CDNs and super-2s, as we've done, is, is the right way to go here, to, to really ramp up the activity of NK cells, prevent desensitization, and combine it with this increased, improved targeting of the neuroblastoma cells with an antibody will, will give us improved therapeutic outcomes in, in these models. So that, that's where we're going with this, and we're very optimistic about it. And of course, we want to do that to help children, because it's often fatal disease. Uh, so, I mean, I haven't told you about every kind of immunotherapy. There, there are others uh, for want of time. These are, these are ones related at least to what we work on. Uh, but there's a lot going on. It's, it's really an exploding uh, field now. And, and I think, um, you know, there are going to be many advances in, in the field uh, coming. Uh, so we're very optimistic. Uh, let me summarize what I've told you today, that immunotherapies revolutionized cancer therapy that checkpoint therapy is now standard therapy for several different kinds of cancer, that many variations of this approach are in development, uh, and different kinds of immunotherapies are in development. Most of those focus on T-cells, mobilizing T-cell responses. But many tumors, we think, may be invisible to T-cells, and therefore, you know, and K-cells are an attractive uh, target for additional uh, immunotherapy uh, implementation, and, and we think they offer great potential for treating many of the types of cancers that are not responsive to existing therapies. And then finally, this general message that the big breakthroughs come from basic research to uncover mechanisms, not so much from, you know, saying, okay, this is a bad disease, let's try and cure it. Because if you don't understand the disease, if you don't understand the mechanisms, you're really kind of uh, wandering around in the dark. You really have to understand uh, how the cells work uh, and and you know, how you can target them better to, to make this all work. So um, I will stop there. This is, these are the members of my laboratory. I've been privileged to work with you know, wonderful postdocs and grad students in my Berkeley lab over many years and, and undergraduates. Um, it's been really a pleasure to work there, and, and, uh, and uh, we're very excited about all the different work we're doing. Thanks. I'd be happy to take questions.
I think there's a, is there a mic or not? There's a question on the front here, yeah. Could you describe in the context of what you've been speaking about exactly what a cancer cell is and how it uh, develops? Well, that's a... uh, (laughs) I mean, you know, cancer cells, interestingly change. So, so, you know, it's hard to pin them down on what they are. I mean, we know how they're initiated by mutations in in genes that control normal cell proliferation and uh, homeostasis. You know, normal cells have various mechanisms to prevent them from growing inappropriately, et cetera, et cetera. But when 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 the proteins that control that become mutated, you lose those controls and the cells begin to proliferate. So an early cancer is really just a normal cell that's, that's sort of lost the ability to control itself with respect to proliferation, uh, and it, it, may start, it may start growing. But it turns out there's many mechanisms to try and suppress that cancer. Some of them are intrinsic in the cell itself. It tries to commit suicide with so-called tumor suppressors. And others are, are extrinsic. They involve the immune system, which attacks the tumor. And, and there's other mechanisms as well. And what happens is, as a tumor... Uh, you know, is growing, you can make variant tumors, cells, that, that escape these different controls, and, and then they evolve. And so by the time, you know, many solid cancers uh, only get diagnosed when you've had them for five years. And, and there's a lot of evolution that occurs by that time. And, and as a result, they, they, they really change a lot. So this is why it's so hard to answer the question. And they become you know, very capable of evading many of, many of these mechanisms, which is why we have to, you know, find ways to reinvigorate them to, to kill the cancer cell. Of course. Yeah. I, yeah, the question I have is infantile paralysis, the crippling disease that uh, Roosevelt had. I understand that the drug used for infantile paralysis has been used in at Duke University to shrink cancer cells in the brain. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. I told you I wouldn't be able to answer all of these questions. Um, I wanted uh, to talk about the same thing about uh, the development, uh, you know, the birth of the uh, cancer cell. And um, with the, the blood cancer, it's right at the very beginning in the plasma and uh, where the, the, I don't know, they call it the stem cell, but maybe there's something before that even. And, uh, and it is true that, uh, that the initial makeup of your, when you had your first diagnosis, was one, one combination, and it changes over the years. Yes. And uh, and so that's with why you people. Uh, the question is, um, this immunology uh, would uh, address whatever state that uh, cancer cell is at at that time. Um, yeah, I mean, of course. Uh, you mean would it work better with stems at a stem cell stage as opposed to a later stage or something like that? 
Well, I mean, usually the problem is that, that cancer is usually, uh, you know, by the time it's diagnosed, it's already progressed to these later stages. And so we have to treat the cancer you have, not the cancer you had. That's one of the, one of the problems. So by the time it it's, uh, presents itself, we know its features, and, and certainly the immune system can target it. So we, we, do, we do think that immune approaches can be effective against uh, leukemias, for sure. Leukemias, by the way, that's shown some... Uh, certain leukemias have shown um, to be susceptible to another kind of therapy I didn't have time to tell you about, which is called CAR T-cells, which is a complicated process where you take T-cells out, you engineer them, and then you put them back in so that they attack your leukemic cells. And that, that's proven to be uh, effective in, in some blood cancers. Not so far effective against solid cancers, unfortunately. Yeah. Does this work? Um, looking at how immunotherapy tends to lead to permanent cures while chemotherapy is, is temporary, um, are there any operating theories you have on why that might be? Um, is cancer stem cell theory related to it? Uh, perhaps. I mean, I think the idea is that, uh, you know, I mean, one, one problem with chemotherapy is that chemotherapy drugs are generally mutagens, right? They cause mutations. That's how they work is they damage DNA. And so... So, you know, you're, you're actually causing mutations that can enable the tumor cell to, to evade the, the, the cancer drugs, that you're, the chemotherapy drugs that you're using. So generally, when, when tumors grow out after chemotherapy, they're actually resistant to the chemotherapy. Uh, immunotherapy, uh, you know, you can get resistance to immunotherapy as well, but the idea is if you eliminate the cells completely in that first round, then, then, uh, then, they won't, then it won't come back. I mean, sometimes it does come back, I have to say, but... Uh, um, does diet play any role in the kinds of things that you are talking about today? Say it again. Does diet play ah. any role in it? Well, there's a large literature on this kind of thing. Uh, you know, the influence of diet and sleep patterns and everything else on how active your NK cells are. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it could. Uh, I don't think there's any simple lessons, though, to be, to be had from that. Uh, but, yeah, I think it could. Hi. Hi. This question is more specific to prostate cancer. Uh-huh. Um, so, ultimately, I um, wanted to ask you about immunotherapy for prostate cancer um, and what you see as promising out there. Secondly, um, the injection of the CDN into the cells that activate the NK cells does prostate cancer cells have those sting cells that would help to uh, potentially, not potentially cure, but um, delay? Um, yeah, so prostate cancer has turned out to be a tough one. It doesn't respond to, um, to checkpoint therapy. We, we don't know whether it could respond to NK cell therapy. That's something that, that I you know, have a personal interest in, in making better. Uh, um, there are approaches that involve using some of these specific antibodies that may bind to prostate cancer cells as an approach to combine that with NK cell therapies that I think could be attractive. So I do think that could work. Um, the CDNs, are, uh, you asked the question whether CDNs would work on prostate cancer cells. I, I should emphasize that the CDNs don't actually act in the tumor cells. They act in other cells uh, that are that are say, within or near the tumor. So we don't have to worry about 
the idea that they have to act in the tumor cells. And that, that actually makes it better and makes it more likely to work in many scenarios. Uh, yeah, two quick questions. One is um, the effectiveness of any of these with esophageal cancer. But the second one is research being done. Uh, I sent you an email recently yeah, yeah. on the use of uh, mm -hmm. mushrooms, particularly mm -hmm. turkey tail and reishi. Mm -hmm. And if there's, uh, if there's uh, studies being done on, on, on those things other than the I actually just sent you an email right before yeah. the talk. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, I mean, there are studies there, and I think I think you know, you know, there are a lot of uh, medicines like or ideas for medicines that come from from natural products that are they're interesting, but you know, clearly they. I think you know, I, I'm not going to believe it till I see you know phase three clinical trial data that really proves it. So it takes time, and more basic research is needed to to investigate how these things work uh, as well. So I think, I think uh, you know, I personally don't know that much about the mushroom-based therapies, but, uh, you know, I'm not saying they don't work. Yeah, I've got a question. A friend of mine died of pancreatic cancer just a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and, and everything I've heard about it is it's only detectable once it reaches this yeah. final stage. What's going on there? <laughs> yeah. Well... That's another tough one. It's very, uh, it's not responsive to any of the th therapies so far, although there's a lot of effort on it, I have to say, on pancreatic. Um, you know, I think uh, with respect to, I mean, a lot of cancers are not detectable until they're well advanced. I mean, that's really the problem. They're internal. They're not, you know, you only, you only know you have them if you have some symptoms. And a lot of times you don't have symptoms until, until the tumor is well advanced, which is really the big part of the problem. If we could detect them early enough, then, then they could be potentially removed. So, um, but pancreatic is, is a tough one for sure. This is on, yes. Can you say anything about the genetic predispositions towards cancer, such as the BRCA1 gene and what's being done in that field and what it means for perhaps, you know, pre-treatment of people other than the most radical ones, but, you know, just the BRCA1 gene and this predispositions? Right. So BRCA1 is in a uh, pathway that's involved in DNA repair, it turns out. And, and, um, so people with BRCA1 mutations are susceptible to several kinds of cancer, it turns out, because the, because the cells are susceptible to mutations. Um, that um, does suggest that, you know, I mean, breast, breast cancers do have a certain number of mutations that could be therefore targeted by, by T-cell therapy. But, but for reasons that are not entirely clear, uh, the T-cell-based checkpoint therapies have not yet been success very successful in breast cancer. But I do think that is, uh, that is, that is an, uh, you know, they could be targeted by T cells. I think the, the thing I really didn't get into here in any detail was that it's very clear that the tumor microenvironment is very immuno, often very immunosuppressive. So immune cells come in, they're happy, they're ready to go, and then they get, they get shut down. And they get shut down by a bunch of different mechanisms. And some of them we think we can reverse, and others we don't know how to reverse. And there's certainly many, many efforts to do this, to define exactly what's immunosuppressive in the tumor microenvironment, and then to, 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 to target those. Breast, breast cancers are an example where there seems to be a lot of immunosuppression. And so that's, that's, a, that's a model in which people are trying to reverse that, that uh, immunosuppression. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of, of what you can do ahead of that, 
you know, I don't know if there's any very good ideas. There is an organization that's attempting to do prophylactic vaccines against breast cancer, which that means you would get it like, you know, you get a, a flu vaccine, you get it before you get sick to try and prevent the disease. That's a very ambitious thing to try and do. I, I don't really know how that could work, but, but there, there is thoughts about trying to do that. Um, yeah, I don't, know. I don't know what else you could do. Thank you.